Cutting for Sign with Ron Cecil and Daniel Pinnerklein. The bad white man calling the devil. The Yavapai calling eyes like the sky. Today we have Jason Brick. Welcome, Jason. Hello, hello. How's Thank it going? Thank you for having me. It's going fantastic. How about yourselves? Dude, it's Wednesday at, you know, we're, what, nine months into the pandemic? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. there's, there's been the first pandemic baby. Oh, my oh, God. Anyway, wow. Like conceived in Conceived pandemic. and born in the pandemic. My whole life has been pandemic. Oh, man. Oh, man. That's crazy. <laughs> I... I I hadn't yeah. thought of that. I'm a little bummed that I have. Smash <laughs> <laughs> cut funny. 20 years later to the therapy. Well, it all started <laughs> in born March of 2020. <laughs> a child born of disease came forth into the wastelands. My mom and dad hadn't spent much time with each other, but they couldn't work. And what can I say? <laughs> I'm kind of waiting for the uh, story of, what is that movie? Mm-hmm. The Story of Men? No, The Children of Men. Um, oh, well, people they can't breed anymore. Yeah, and babies like can't be born. Mm-hmm. You know, side note on that, just a funny little side note. Someone had recommended Children of Men to me as a movie. Great movie, great movie. Gotta movie. watch it. Gotta watch it for years. But the whole time they had said it, I thought they said in the first pitch where people can't breathe anymore. And so I was like, what an interesting idea. I wanted to watch this movie about people who can't breathe anymore. It's like three <laughs> minutes long. <laughs> I I was uh, watching The Crown the other day, and uh, it was like the episode about Princess Diana. And I watch all of my TV movies with the subtitles on because mm. I want to catch what everyone is saying. And for the first time in my life, I caught the lyrics to a Fleetwood Mac song. <laughs> and, and I was like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and I, I co- completely forgot about what the scene was about because I was like, I had no idea. <laughs> That's what I was saying. <laughs> Fleetwood Mac's one of those kind of stealth bands from our childhood, right? Where our parents listened to it and we kind of dismiss it as this old people music. But they were singing about fucking every beat of every song, <laughs> often recording it while fucking. Yeah, I'm sure that's right. I'm sure that's right. Yeah, there was like quite a bit of that. Like, yeah, so many song lyrics are just Rorschach tests. You know, like they yeah. they don't say it clear enough, mm-hmm. so you hear what you want to hear, and then maybe life doesn't clear it up until you know thirty years later or something. I must. That must be. Yeah an absolute idiot because I would have liked to have known what you a thought a lot of about. what the lyrics end up in my mm-hmm. yeah, is just exactly. like <laughs> like I don't I don't know like the words like there's not even a formation it's yeah. just mumbling <laughs> it's like the teacher from Charlie Brown is fronting a band right <laughs> that's exactly <laughs> what my brain does yeah. that's, exactly <laughs> that's exactly right well Jason you are mm-hmm. uh, you're an interesting guy you've got a bunch of different projects going on you have a rad youtube channel that i can't wait to deep dive more into and uh but the real reason we're talking to you today is that you have gone through what many many other people have gone through but don't talk about very often which is being married to a person uh who had uh, a 
pretty bad mental illness. And, and, um, man, it's weird to even have to say that out loud. And I, I guess to normalize it, like I've, I have people in my family who have had the same mental illness. I've been friends with folks who've had parents with the same mental illness. And I've been there when they've had to dig them out of jail. I've been there when things have gone super sideways. And, um, and I have myself, you know, had all kinds of things that I've needed help with and have, you know, jumped in all in some of that. So tell me, tell us a little bit about what I'm hinting at and you can clarify really well. Oh, wow. I first want to thank you for bringing up mental illness as a thing that people, especially men need to talk to and think about yeah. and respect yes. because the whole shtick of men handling their shit, you know, is so harmful and yeah. it's no fairer to ask somebody with a mental illness to come together and, you know, sack up or whatever and deal with it. It's no fairer to do that than to ask someone with a broken leg to run a marathon. Oh man, I, I we could almost like end it like we did it. We did it, everybody. <laughs> uh, Jason Greg, been a pleasure. Good to see you, brother. Man. It's not going too long here. I yeah. man, I love that. I think you, man, that is deserves to be like sat in for a second. That the fact that mental illness is 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 as detrimental as any kind mm. of injury one person might could carry around yeah that's so well and they don't heal right and that broken leg is going to get better right um and there are treatments and there are techniques that people can use to mitigate the damage and mitigate how how much it controls their lives but it is you know it's a mental disability it's a mental mentally challenged has a whole other set of connotations but yeah and in my particular case i married a woman and after the, the birth of our first child, well, it was our second child, but our first was adopted. So the first time she was pregnant, she developed symptoms of severe bipolar disorder. Mm. And we didn't know, but apparently the experts do, that that's if you don't develop your bipolar disorder in your late teens or early 20s, the next most likely time is after you give birth. Oh, my gosh. Wow. That's nice. Yeah. Never heard There's just, yeah, the hormone, the rush of hormones and all of that and the exhaustion just triggers it. Apparently. Wow. Plus you have the, um, from what I understand, like mm-hmm. postpartum depression, which could mm-hmm. kind of open the door to even if you didn't, but you'd be already in that world. Mm-hmm. And maybe it just, well, anyways. Yeah, it was bad. And in our particular case, it was funny when she got her diagnosis, she asked if anybody was angry with her or if anybody thought less of her. Mm-hmm. And in retrospect, looking at the, you know, at that point, the 10 years I'd known her and most of our friends had known her, we had to say we weren't necessarily surprised. Mm. She definitely had some symptoms earlier on, uh, but they didn't become severe until after it just kind of leveled up, for lack of a better word, after the birth. Mm. And then what ended up happening was she showed like Daniel mentioned, she showed a lot of signs of postpartum depression. Uh, at one point, she came to me. The baby was, you know, was about four months old. And she said to me, hey, isn't your cousin looking to adopt? Hmm. And I had to look her in the eye and tell her, hon, this kid and me, we're a package deal. Hmm. And a couple of weeks later, she went three days without sleep. Hmm. Started having some fairly profound hallucinations near the end, as you might. Yeah. Uh, we took her into the emergency room, the psychiatric emergency room in our area. 
And she, within 10 minutes, was doing this manics, the exact word to describe it, lecture to the entire staff on a uh, whiteboard she had uh, basically just confiscated and was drawing this weird, crazy diagram of the last 72 hours and why she couldn't sleep. And she ended up in a residential treatment center for almost two weeks. And then she came out with the diagnosis and the medication and the medication itself was an issue. turns out the first medication she tried her on, they don't use it for bipolar disorder anymore. They use it as a sleep aid. Hmm. And so she was uh, wandering around like a zombie for about two weeks before we switched her meds. And then we got into the next stage. But that's kind of a, that's the first bit. And I can, I'll kind of pause there. And if there are any questions anybody has, any thoughts that we want to explore. Man, I, I mean, one, number one, dude, thank you for sharing any of this. This is, I'm, I, I was, I mean, I got married early in my life and mm-hmm. got divorced in my mid twenties. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, that's what we like to call a mulligan marriage. Right. Yeah. Right? yeah. Cause you got, got married early, no kids, <laughs> no harm, no foul. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I'm glad that I, that I don't even want to say escape. Like it, it's a joke. Mm-hmm. I say to myself, I mean, I mean, God bless that woman where she's at, mm-hmm. but like, uh, she should have probably been on, uh, uh, some medications and maybe I should have been too, to be honest. And, and, but we, neither of us had the wherewithal or the, or, uh, you know, unfortunately or fortunately, the symptoms to really understand how bad it was, especially for her who slept, you know, she could sleep 72 hours, like just like mm. be cool. just done. And I'd have to like wake her up to like drink water. And, and as a 21 year old young man, mm. newly married, I'm like, what's wrong with my wife? Like, what's wrong with her? Is she, is she okay? And they try to diagnose uh, chronic fatigue, which is basically a blanket yeah. diagnosis for like, we don't know, but you're fatigued chronically. Um, uh-huh. So as I'm hearing you talk, man, I'm just thinking about all the husbands I've talked to, the, the dudes or anyone uh-huh. I've talked to who's been in relationship with someone who's really suffering. Uh-huh. And you have your own secondary kind of trauma, your own secondary suffering that you're dealing with. And and I'm just grateful you're... Well, maybe you have your... Your own totally. Primary. I know, right? Yeah, yeah. it's not like it's do. like women are go through this and guys, you know, we're you know, it's yeah, like, that's mm-hmm. that. That's not how it works. Um, and I mean, there's a lot of men out there too who have mental illnesses, one kind or another. A yeah. lot of people, a lot of men with PTSD, mm-hmm. if they were in the military or with the police, or even just had the wrong late teens and early twenties and went to the wrong bars and got in the wrong fights with the wrong people. Mm-hmm. You know, that PTSD is just as real and just as damaging and just as important. Yeah. Yeah. So, sorry. Uh, well, I was just going to say, I talked mm-hmm. to guys who've gotten it because they had a dad mm-hmm. who was a bellowing alcoholic who mm-hmm. armed around the house and destroyed it and destroyed them and tore things up. And, and, you know, they were in a war zone as children um, mm-hmm. where the fighter was their alcoholic dad. Uh, yeah. and, there's, and we're supposed to man up and just, yeah push all that down and not deal with it. Not, not, not it down. No, it's not so unhealthy. <laughs> yeah. It's unbelievably unhealthy. Yeah. So well, how are you doing? Like mm-hmm. when, as this was going on with your ex-wife, mm-hmm. what was going through your head? How were you handling yourself? I mean, mm-hmm. it's not like you had two kids cause you had your adopted yeah. child and this birth child. 
you were juggling, you were probably being plates, right? In, In a huge way. And that's one of the ways I'm very, very lucky is that, you know, everybody has a superpower. You don't know what it is. You eventually find it out. I believe everybody does. My superpower is that when things are really difficult, I automatically just go on mission and I'll freak out about it later. I'll be miserable about it in retrospect, but at the time it was a problem to solve. And so, although there was probably some subconscious fatigue and fear and despair, I didn't experience that until after I was safe, until we were more safe, after that crisis had been over. But you're absolutely right. Uh, One of the, another way I was very fortunate was all of this happened when I was working as a freelance writer with a gig. I was making about $100 an hour at that time. So from home. So I had a job where I could make uh, professionally, I could keep me and the kids and my wife eating food and sleeping indoors with two to three hours of my time a day from the house. And on top of that, my parents lived two miles away and my brother was renting a room in the house. So I had that level of support and that lucky a job when I was essentially a single parent with two kids and an emo teenager. How a 17-year-old waitress who got kicked out of the house by mom and dad because she got knocked up even begins to handle it. I can't imagine. Man, it sounds like, um, I mean, one, you're recognizing your fortuitous circumstances around yeah. that. And, and maybe even some folks might even call that privilege. I don't know, but, but it's such a loaded word, but you know, it's, it is a very loaded word, but yeah. it, it's naive to imagine it doesn't exist. Yeah. And it's evil to weaponize it the way that, the people who often use the word are do. Yeah. 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 That's yeah. A, great, a great differentiator. But I also love that what I was going to say as an addendum to that was the fact that what you're also pointing to is the fact that most people or some people don't have that advantage. They yeah. don't have that support system. And, and I, you, you sound, I don't know you very well, but obviously you sound, you're an intelligent person. That's not, you know, um, that's easy to see. And by the judge of your books back there, you're also an educated person. And but based on how much you were getting paid, that must be true that people trust you. So you have an, a real understanding of this topic on a, on a you know personal level, obviously, as that was going through there. I mean, when you, when you said how you just kind of stuffed it down until you were safe, that reminded me of, being in a, a car accident I was in when I was 20 years old, I was in, um, I was volunteering in Africa and I was building a school and volunteering in a hospital. And we took a couple days of, you know, R and R for ourselves with this group of about 10 kids. We had two Toyota trucks that we were using to drive around. And, and I was in the backseat of one of these trucks, uh, talking to the driver who was like catty corner to me and, as we're driving, the sun was setting, going down the small highway, two lane highway, 75 miles an hour. The sun diffuses on the screen. We go off the highway and he flips the truck two and a half times. And Ow. I held myself in by just by just body tension in the cab. And until it landed like the second, you know, like kind of you could see the horizon turning. 
and the the front seat smashed me in the face and i was like i've got a broken nose here it comes and i was the first person out of the car as it landed on its side i was the person pulling everybody out and i felt cool as a cucumber until i got into a vehicle headed towards the hospital and all of a sudden it was like this like someone was pulling something out of my body and i oh. and my adrenaline system like finally gave up i guess i don't know and the tears came and the and the all the like um what they call it survivor guilt like why did why am i okay like i don't have a scratch on me i'm fine why why is this girl having to go to the hospital like they got beat up right so i can understand that sense like when you're in it like you yeah. can be in it you can be in it but there's also your body needs to catch up and, and yeah. how did that how did that catch up for you Oh man, it, uh, it was a few years, uh, had a couple of friends of mine. It was maybe nine months after all this happened, uh, took me out for a couple of beers. They volunteered to, they arranged babysitting for me, uh, several babysitting for the baby and for the woman who was my wife at that time. And took me, I said, dude, you are completely exhausted. How can we help? And so they were able to get me some more time off duty and, one things that happened there was because it's at that time and still it's hard for me to take time off as a father. I have a very strong inkling that two things exist. There's the things my family needs and there's the stuff that I kind of hope happens at some point, which is an overreaction and not very healthy. But yeah. at that time they talked me into actually doing the conference circuit uh, as a freelance writer mm. and the uh, seminar circuit as a martial arts instructor so that I could go get, a few days away from the responsibilities of my family while I was still working. And that was what I could give myself permission to do at the time. Sounds like good friends, friends who would know you yeah. well enough to, to kind of tick the boxes mm-hmm. for you that they know you well enough. That's like, I need them. Yeah. Jason, just for uh, mm-hmm. some kind mm-hmm. of continuity and to get the, mm-hmm. how long this all was from the birth of the child uh, to like when we met in 2000, uh, uh, well, to the birth of the child to when you finished or when you were divorced, like when you decided to split, how long was that? So Gabe was six years old. It was the early 2016. So we had just turned six when so the divorce finally came. Six years you were in this. Yeah. And it wasn't as bad as that first episode. That was about a year when we were getting, you know, getting the diagnosis, fiddling the meds figuring it all out and, you know, going to counseling, getting the skills. Another real fortunate thing that happened to me, Daniel, did you ever meet my friend, Julie fast? I don't, I feel, I feel like I might've connected you to at one point or another. She's a Portland area author who is the country's leading expert on bipolar disorder. Oh, wow. (laughs) And I happened to meet her at her conference and she's a, her brother's a, was a UFC fighter for a while. And so we had a lot in common and she's one of my closest friends now. And she was, you know, she was on the phone with me on a regular basis. Uh, my wife and I were in a marriage counseling meeting at one point and the woman recommended a book to me that I had helped do some copy editing on for Julie. So, so I had that support as well. Wow. It sounds fortunate. like these little, these little details really weren't, you know, mm. not accidental. I mean, I don't know how you feel about that yeah. situation in the world, but some things, mm-hmm. some it's, it seems sometimes stars align or, you know. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, 
I have mixed, very mixed feelings on it. On the one hand, there are definitely things in my life that feel like there was a hand at play, whether you want to call it fate, whether you want to call it God. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, I feel like approaching life with the idea that things are meant to be or that there's a higher being guiding the ship, as it were, mm. is a really good way to set yourself up to not take responsibility for your own success. Yeah. And my mom's a minister, and one of her favorite things is if you're really? in a storm, yeah, yeah. she's a Lutheran minister. That's a funny side story, but uh, one of her favorite sayings that I love is if you're in a storm, you pray for the right wind, but you also row for shore. Mm. Mm. That's great. Yeah. That's great. I went to school to be a pastor and could never, mm. and could never like go full in. <laughs> <laughs> no. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. And, and I, uh, yeah, I think I probably land exactly the same way you land. Like, yeah. yeah. Okay. There's sometimes seems these like fortuitous circumstances that go in, but I still feel ultimately responsible to, you know, just, row for sure or row to shore like yeah. and and to you know yeah the best with what i've got yeah exactly and if there's a if there is a god that is in charge of all this i can't imagine any god worth worth giving your faith to would take issue with that approach yeah you tried so hard exactly yeah the way my mom got through it actually you know uh this is a family joke that's not really entirely in jest, but my youngest brother, uh, he joined the army and he was in for eight years, had four tours in Iraq, finally got back from his last tour, physically healthy, mostly mentally healthy, quit the army forever. Six months later, my mom goes into seminary. So we joke, but we're not really kidding that she clearly made a deal with God and now she's paying off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> Somewhere there's a minister who's got, got like a tear in their eye. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, it seems so clearly. And she, when I, I finally, you know, we'd been joking about it for months. And when I finally told her the joke, she just kind of, holy <laughs> shit, I think you're right. that's great oh man so were you you mentioned Mm -hmm. that as you were going through this this, especially that first year you were also going to therapy tell us a little bit about like the Mm -hmm. self-care you had to you know figure out Mm -hmm. and angle through this so i'm fortunate enough that um my own my own experience in martial arts got me in touch with some very strong mentors and i have some friends who are experienced and the self-care, I really screwed up the self-care for the first six months, nine months. I was just on mission. I was taking care of the baby. And when the baby was asleep, I was taking care of my wife. And when my, they were both asleep, I was taking care of the oldest son. Hmm. And I, when I have real serious stress, I do two things. I work out a lot and I schedule my day down to the half an hour. Um, if you look at it, if you, if you look at, you know, I step back and I look, I'm clearly trying to establish a degree of control in a situation that I have no control on, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I can, I can do more sit-ups. I can always do more sit-ups or whatever. And if I've scheduled my day out, then it's like, it, it feels like I'm putting that day in a box. Mm. Um, so I did that. And that was, you know, that was my own neuroses, dealing with it as well as I could. And then I think what happened is as it kept going and as it kept going, and it became clear that this wasn't something I could just muscle through on endurance and grit alone. I had to start actually taking care of myself. And I did better with my diet. Uh, there was a whole other thing there where I learned to cook about that time. Um, 
back up about a year before the baby was born, I sold my karate studio and told my wife I wanted to work from home as a writer while she went out and worked a job, which is a, you know, not, not every woman you marry is going to be up for you being the stay-at-home, work-from-home parent. Um, but she said, that's fine, but I expect a delicious dinner waiting and hot when I get home. Mm-hmm. And so I learned to cook. Uh, and so at that point, I was starting to get good at it, so I focused on my nutrition. <clears throat> I started making sure that before when I had been staying up with the baby because Gabriel was a late goer to bed or in a late wake her upper, uh, I'd put him down to bed and then the whole house would be asleep. And then I just go crash wherever I, you know, wherever the nearest soft space was. Uh, but then I made myself go ahead and get a light workout, some stretching on a few katas before I went to bed. And that kind of, you know, disciplined self care in those two departments yeah. carried me through until my wife was able to contribute more to the household. So at a certain point, it sounds like that bipolar, the problems of bipolar disorder, they got kind of handled. You know? I wouldn't say handled, but they got better. There was the emergency, right? And if we use the, you know, you use a broken arm hmm. metaphor again, there was when the arm is broken, there's a bone sticking out and you, yeah. you get it set here in the cast. But after that's done, there's still the, the year of physical therapy. And your life is mostly normal, but every once in a while, you reach for a can of beans in the wrong way, and your whole arm just twinges and seizes up, and you have to do the physical therapy exercises, which I'm sure you guys have both been, in, been injured. It's, they often hurt worse than the injury. Yeah. Right? So after the, after the emergency, we still had a lot of work to do. And what was some of that work like? Uh, maybe past year two, one, year two, year three. How did that work change, and did it continue, or did so it? That's that's up? the that's the problem, and that's where I feel like I failed in in some ways, and I feel like my ex wife failed in some ways. And unfortunately, this story doesn't have a happy ending in terms of that marriage. It did it did end up not working. And one of the issues was, you know, we went to therapy. We she went to personal therapy. I went to personal therapy. We went to couples therapy. And to go back again to that metaphor of an injured person, did, have, did you have, either of you watch that uh, sitcom Parks and Rec? Yeah, yeah. a little bit, yeah. Uh, so, you know, that character in the beginning, the, the crappy boyfriend who broke his leg, but just sat there on the couch doing nothing, hollering for French toast or whatever and never making any contribution. And then actually after he was better, he kept the cast on for like two months because he didn't want to... his a girlfriend to stop being so nice to him where when you're injured, it's, I feel like it's your responsibility to do what you can. Mm -hmm. And when people have a diagnosis of mental illness and I'm trying to be as non-judgmental as possible, but you know, people have a diagnosis and they take that information and they go, okay, I understand the problems in front of me. This is my plan for overcoming them to fulfill my responsibilities to the people I love and to get what I want out of my life. And I think we all know people who take that approach. There are also people who take that diagnosis and that's their excuse for not doing things. Yeah. And unfortunately, for my wife's part, she definitely took the second path. And I feel like I failed. I did a... I did much more throwing guilt on her for making that decision Mm. and much less 
building a supportive foundation where she could make the other decision than I should have. Man, that sounds like some, um, you know, ownership of your, your side of the street in that one. I was trying really hard not to say extreme ownership because the book's sitting on your shelf. (laughs) 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 But that's exactly what sounds like you did. Um, Well, you know, like I said, I'm divorced too. And it sounds like you have also enjoyed uh, a new, new life, essentially a new relationship. Um, My wife and I, my current wife and I are coming up on our 13th year of marriage. Congratulations. Thank you. And life is better, man. I mean, like, Mm -hmm. you know, and it seems like that as well. I mean, I, I I know a little bit about you from what Daniel said, and it sounds like you're thriving right now. And so what, what hard lessons did you learn that have made your life markedly better? Like, how did you take that and and jujitsu that into, into success, into thriving, into better self-care, into, you you know, a better relationship Mm -hmm. with your wife right now? Well, man, those are huge questions. Uh, so I think, I think it started with the process of realizing that I needed to get a divorce. And I was unhappy. My ex-wife was unhappy. And ultimately, she was not a good parent. She, was, she, re, she would resent the affection I showed to our children and get jealous of them. And, of course, a lot of this was related to her diagnosis. Uh, yeah. She had a weird relationship with uh, with our adopted oldest son, uh, and it was damaging them. And you know, I had to take a look at this. You know, I had made a promise to someone I loved when I married this woman, mm-hmm. and to me, that was set in stone. That's it. You don't break promises to the people you love. But at the same time, I had these promises I'd made my kids, and I wasn't keeping that promise by staying with her. Right. And understanding and navigating that was a massive growth opportunity for me. And then figuring out how to get out of it in as kind and compassionate a way as I could without the temptation to just be really angry with her (laughs) and let that fuel it um, was there, but... I can't let her sons see me being really angry with her and calling her terrible names and yeah. running her down as a person because she's part of them. And what does that say about them if I'm talking like that? Mm. What kept you in that relationship for six years and not five, four, three, you know? Um, mostly the, the, the weight of that promise. And now around year four, of Gabriel's life, I had something I would say to her every once in a while when we were talking about a relationship and moving forward and in the, in the marriage counseling about, I want a divorce, but what I want more than a divorce is to not want a divorce. Help mm-hmm. me not want a divorce. Mm-hmm. And then we did a Hail Mary uh, when we went and lived in Malaysia. Where my wife, my ex-wife and I met when we were both living in Japan. And that was the happiest I had ever seen her. She was happy. She was competent. She was confident. She was kicking ass. And so we both thought that maybe going and living abroad again might reawaken some of those things that were where she was powerful. And uh, yeah, it didn't work. And then when we got home, it was, I pretty much just got busy on moving forward with the divorce. So you weren't ever experiencing codependence 
I don't know. Probably not. Maybe. Yeah. I'm not. Yeah. No one ever mentioned that in the counseling sessions, but that doesn't mean it doesn't seem like didn't it. happen. Mm-hmm. You know, but mostly it was just that I felt like I'd promised her to. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then what was the mm-hmm. hardest thing about actually doing it? What was, uh, that, just what was that experience like? Seeing her, seeing how much it broke her heart. Oh, really? You know, um, I don't want to put myself on a pedestal or anything like that, but one of the things she told me was that I love you so much. And do you know what it meant to watch you fall out of love with me? I'm like, Oh fuck. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And it was, but it was the responsibilities I had to the kid and how profoundly unhappy I was by then. And one of the places where I did wrong was I should have done it earlier. Mm-hmm. You know, I, you know, by the time we did the Hail Mary, I was done. Mm-hmm. Um, and I should have divorced her before that. Uh, the kids would have had two years with a happier dad and a more stable and safe life. She would have had two more years to work on herself. She's actually doing pretty okay now. Really? You know, I, yeah, I'm, I'm apparently very hard to be married to. Uh, <laughs> let's get let's hear her side of the story now <laughs> yeah, but I, I was not as kind a person as yeah. i am now and as kind as i should have been i was very much from that tradition of you tell someone they fucked up and you take it when tell, someone tells you you fucked up and you get strong by acknowledging that you fucked up and fucking up less, less next time and i could have been so much gentler and kinder. Mm. And now again, it's back to the drill sergeant telling the guy with a broken arm to do another push-up. So that must, um, yeah. it must affect your marriage now and where you ended up after all that. Cause you, I mean, I don't think we could possibly reveal more personal stuff about your life. So, <laughs> uh, which just a yeah. pause, man. Thank you. I didn't realize what we were going to focus so intently on. And uh, on this, so um, appreciate you sharing. I, I mean, I I yeah. want to add something to that. Like I I mm-hmm. um, I talk to men every week, um, you know, multiple times a week about they're on the precipice of that making that kind of decision, mm-hmm. or they're on the other side. And mm-hmm. and what you said really struck me about you should have done it earlier. And, and I think about how my ex-wife and I thrived, like we went into thrive mode after we got a divorce and, and she's a raging success now in her life. Um, and I think we hold on to ideals and we hold on to stuff, hoping beyond hope that the car's going to finally turn over if we just keep bringing it. And, and there is a kind of kindness that comes from making the decision, realizing that this thing has flatlined and and you're just wasting your energy beating this chest of this, this dead thing. I know I went through like three different metaphors there, but um, you know, I I say that in hope that if someone is listening to this and they, they've already like, they know it, like they know man, I don't know why I'm continuing to do this, that, that it would give them 
a, a glimmer of hope that maybe it is time to call it on this and, and, and be grateful for the time that you've had with them and be grateful for all of it. And to start to practice that kind of kindness to oneself that is a severe mercy, yeah. you know, I absolutely agree that, you know, once you're, I feel like I was stuck for two years in where I was going through the motions of trying to make the marriage work, but my heart wasn't in it, which meant I was spent two years lying to my wife, which I shouldn't do. It's an interesting, I have another friend who recently went through a breakup and it was really interesting is to see him and how clear it is just two weeks, you know, later, like it becomes, it goes from being this tortured decision to a fucking mm-hmm. no-brainer. Yeah. A visceral yeah. no-brainer. Like that, you know? And mm-hmm. how do you, you know, navigate that? Mm-hmm. And how do you recognize the clues? Because they really almost like peripheral clues, you know, when you're still in it. Uh, friends, coaches, therapy, you know. Yeah. Anyway, I was just just noting that. No, absolutely agree. Uh, one of the uh, through lines with many of my friends is in the time after I got the divorce because most of my close friends in our circle have only known us as a couple because we came back from Japan together and settled into the town where we live. And one of the through lines is, Oh shit, Jason, you're not an asshole. You were just in a bad mood the entire marriage. <laughs> and <laughs> I don't know if that's entirely true, but there, there is some truth to that. I'm a much happier person, much in a much better space and thriving emotionally, financially um, in terms of my health, the whole nine. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me, tell me about Mm -hmm. what it was like post-divorce. You know, obviously you're going into a new relationship with kids, right? Mm -hmm. You now have this satellite relationship out there on the peripheral. You're explaining all of this Mm -hmm. to your new love and, Mm -hmm. and they have to also decide because I, I remember, you know, I'm the product of parents who are married and divorced 13 times. Oh shit. Yeah. I know, man. Yeah. And I, thought, I, I, I gotta, I gotta respect the enthusiasm <laughs> and the optimism. My dad was addicted to matrimony. I say like he was, uh, <laughs> he was the, he was the highest perpetrator in that. Mm-hmm. And I, and I had such high hopes that if I could just not get a divorce, I would break the family curse. Mm. Um, <laughs> And, and getting a divorce when I was, you know, 25, 26 years old, mm. it felt like such a low point. Now I'm like, God, mm. thank God that you happened. Know, all like, you had to do yeah. was make the curse. I thought about this recently yeah. is not mm. get married that sixth time. Yeah, really. <laughs> <laughs> well, that played a role in my decision too. My parents were middle school sweethearts. Wow. My dad's been on one date with one girl, one time. I know her <laughs> name. <laughs> that's how monogamous those two are yeah. wow. and so the idea of getting a divorce was like oh my fucking god but yeah you get at the other end and you're just so much better because you know yeah. we get we get married at a certain age and we're not smart enough to know that no this person's not right for us yeah yeah so what is, so back to my question like how did yeah. you out with your I, I don't know your wife's name you don't have to tell it to me your name but your new wife it's Rachel yeah Rachel Latofsky yeah. We're um, coming on four years now. Okay. And so, we were talking before about times when you think that there are signs, right? That there was a guiding hand. Yeah. Uh, I got invited to a writing conference in Wenatchee, Washington, that 
is, a, is one I go to almost every year, but I wasn't invited that year because the organizer thought I was still out of the country. And then she found out I was in the country. And two weeks before the conference, I get a call from her that somebody has had to cancel at the last minute. And can I come save the day? And that's where I meet the woman who became my wife. Mm. Just, and apparently her, her invitation to the conference happened in a very similar way. Neither of us were supposed to be there. Mm. And it was like, Oh, hi, there, there you are. I've been looking for you. Yeah. One uh, thing that I was surprised about, and I'm, 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 Working toward what what Ronald's getting at too is, you you seemed ready to be in a healthy relationship, you know, yeah. after your divorce, which you know maybe you were ready for that for a long time before. Mm-hmm. But at first, I thought, oh man, he's getting married quick, you know. A lot of people felt that way, and part of it was that she was from Canada, so we got married probably in a year when we would have normally gotten engaged. Yeah, just for um, you know, uh, immigration reasons. Yeah. But still, even a year later would have been pretty quick. Uh, and I really think, because I, I looked at that, I was careful that you were one of the good friends who took me aside. I said, dude, are, are you sure he's going to be in a bit of a hurry? Did dude, I say that? Um, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah that's, that that. that's awesome. I mean, yeah. We were sitting there on that deck in that cool little downstairs apartment you had. And you're like, she seems nice, Jason, but dude, I, come on. Because uh, I had just gotten divorced and I was like, yeah. very different experience. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And it's, I, looking at it, you know, again, it's kind of that observer from the outside. I think it was just that I was, I had been done with and grieved the relationship of my marriage years before the divorce. Yeah, exactly. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So by the time that officially happened, I was, I was ready for those next steps. So, so getting back to that, Mm -hmm. you know, I asked my now father-in-law, you know, if I could marry his daughter and he's like, that's a terrible idea. You guys have the odds completely stacked against you. You have been divorced. She is a single mom. You come from a family of many, many divorces. Like you have mm-hmm. very low odds of success. Why do you think you're going to stay married to her? And I'm like, oh, fuck. <laughs> you know, like he's right. Like what, mm-hmm. what prayers hope do I have? Uh, uh, you know, and I, and, and I told Morgan that I was like, your dad's like saying, that this is a very stupid idea. And I think he's right. Mm-hmm. And so how can we throw all of our intention into mm-hmm. proving him wrong? Because the odds are absolutely stacked against us. So, you know, I don't know what your, what your, your brain state was like. I mean, I'm sure they're part mm-hmm. of it was stars and, and rainbows and excitement about meeting Rachel. Mm-hmm. But was there also a bit of like, man, I got to bring a different game to this. I got to bring a different player to this game. So that was a kind of, but not really, where I felt very different about this woman than even from the very beginning of my relationship with my ex-wife. Okay. And I think part of that was being older. I think part of that was before I had a baby that I was responsible for, I was a much harder ass. I was very macho, very toxic masculine, mm-hmm. very, you know, very buttoned down, very Northern European, right? And having that baby, just there was a fundamental change in me. I'm a softer, more open, more loving person. And so there was that. And also this woman is just much better suited to me. Yeah. Yeah. And so I didn't have a plan to do better. 
but I was doing better. Yeah. And one of the things that's just not a month goes by that I don't have a little pang of guilt about this is how you're supposed to feel about and treat your wife. Mm. Why didn't you treat Beverly like this? Mm. Yeah. Cause it was on like looking back, I'm very glad about the life I've lived. I'm very glad about the existence of my youngest son and that I was able to provide a home for my oldest son. But if I felt that way, the way that I felt about my first wife, I shouldn't have married her in the first place. I did her a gross disservice. Yeah. Becoming her husband. Yeah. So kind of almost the opposite of what you're talking about, about you fucked up. How are you going to not fuck up this one? It's like, well, I didn't, this one's not fucked up. Right. right. I really should have, I really shouldn't have fucked up the last one yeah. so badly. Yeah. Yeah. I get that. I, I my ex-wife and I've both spoken. We were like, boy, we shouldn't have gotten into that. And, and yeah. like, essentially we were, we kind of said like, we both own it and we both kind of have a lot of empathy for our younger selves. Mm. Our younger part of us that didn't know better, that didn't have yeah. where all to even begin to ask the questions yeah. that should have been asked. Um, Although honestly, for you know that like I call it a mulligan marriage, that early twenties, yeah. no kids, you're out. Nobody should feel any kind of guilt about that shit. That's just that's just moving in with your first college girlfriend that got a little out of hand. Yeah, you yeah. know, there's, yeah, except, they, the, <laughs> except a little out of hand, like in my case, because I, I could say mm-hmm. to my, the marriage that I experienced. You know, is both of you, or I, you definitely know her, but, uh, you know, she's a delightful human. Uh, and it was just, you know, that thing that got, quote, a little out of hand also took nine years off of a major aspect of someone's life, you know, their romantic. Yeah. And so, you know, that a mulligan takes about a half a second, you know? Yeah. 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 Yours doesn't count as a mulligan. That was, that was too long. Oh, that was a nice. Race. But you know, you get those, you get those twenties, they're married like three years, four years and they're, in a row, you know, <laughs> I appreciate you know? that. Like, no, sometimes yeah, the guilt good. is completely yeah. like you're on Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> you should, you should flog yourself repeatedly every night. Well, no, no, you're into that. You should yeah. withhold floggings from yourself. <laughs> So speaking of guilt and shame, which I love, yeah. uh, you said you mentioned you got you not a month goes by that you don't feel a pang of guilt around that. Uh, there, I think there is like a, a gift of guilt that tells us it's our nervous system, our memory telling us like, "Hey, you fucked up. Let's steer clear of that again." Yeah, other people can become prisoners to guilt. Absolutely. Where do you fall in that? So I'm a, I, I try to be as Zen as possible. You know, you, you see it, you acknowledge it, you say hello. Mm. And then you think about for a while, think about the things that are important with it, that can help you be a better person. And then you move it along. Uh, one of the things that it helps me with is, you know, I just kind of note it, put a pin in it, put it over there. And then the next time my ex-wife really pisses me off, I take a deep breath <laughs> and let that, let that kind of grow into a little more patience because she remains a really bad mother and she has, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to spend a lot of time complaining, but when my youngest son is with her on her week with him, he is routinely awake at 11 o'clock on a school night and he comes back to us exhausted. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Big deep raccoon circles 
Uh, when he was in school, you know, when, when school, school was happening, the first day or two after he got home to us, he would get home from school and fall asleep at like three in the afternoon. Not a nap. Like if I didn't wake him up through the night past dinner asleep, he was so exhausted. Yeah. Uh, so, and I can get very frustrated with that, especially since she's a teacher. Mm-hmm. The, the temptation is like, you have a master's degree in this this thing you're fucking up right now (laughs) right and so that but that guilt kind of encourages me not to do it like that or vent even as much as i have in the last three minutes (laughs) glad we can provide that for you yeah no i'll I'll tell a story uh, on my my youngest son that is a little bit of a complaint about my ex-wife and uh, a lot of pride in him i think i told you about this this weekend daniel uh, it was his mom's weekend with him. I get a call on Friday night at 1030 that her roommate has died in the house unexpectedly. And can I please come and pick up the lad so he doesn't have to be there for all of the things that come next? Uh, I find out that when they found the body, she had uh, apparently it was a stroke or a blood clot and she had just died in the tub. So it was kind of private and Gabe didn't have to see the body or anything. But mom's running around trying to, trying to call 911. And the 10-year-old called 911 because he had it together enough to call 911. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, way to go, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> Your mom's freaking out. She can't figure out how to call 911. You solve the problem and you get it done in the middle of what must have been a terrifying situation for you too. Yeah. And then the next thing he did was go to, go to the roommate's dog and comfort the dog until I was able to get there. Um, so on the one hand, so proud of you. On the other hand, lady... What the hell? <laughs> and that kind of brings up a point that has crossed my mind several times in this discussion mm-hmm. is, okay, if we take the, the, the term, the idea that to some extent everyone's doing the best mm-hmm. they can, that's, yeah. that's such a Schrodinger's cat sort of conversation mm-hmm. question. Um, because if a person doesn't have the tools how can you blame them for being for not for doing something, not doing something that you do have the tools for, you know? Yeah. So frustration comes from these. It sounds like in many situations you're discussing. Um, I've experienced uh, um, a, a couple of years where mental illness through anxiety came up like out of nowhere. And I was not myself um, or rather I was a very, a very different week um not weak but vulnerable and um, overwhelmed part of myself um you know how can you tell what a person should be doing or is capable of uh when they don't have the tools that that maybe you have or that another person who could do that seemingly easy could do you know and have you do you feel like you've reached to what extent have you reached a level of compassion understanding you know what she's working with well there's what what I know is true. And then there's what I can act on. And then there's that other part in the middle where there's the shoulder devil and the shoulder angel arguing about it. Right. Yeah. Where, you know, you, you read up, you find out what she's capable of. And at this point, you know, she's been living with bipolar disorder for 10 years, yeah. uh, has a pretty good handle on it. I'm, I'm aware of most of her symptoms. She and I communicate fairly regularly, including about how she's doing in a given week. Um, so that she can have the support she needs. Um, and yeah, as you say, it's not fair to 
get frustrated with or throw guilt on someone for not doing what they're not capable of doing. At the same time, it's also not fair to set them up in a situation where that failure is important. Yeah. And unfortunately, in a joint custody situation, I can't always act on that last piece. I see what you mean. That would be frustrating. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, and so I have to take the back end, right? Where, um, you know, the channel saves family on the block channel and all of that is in part me teaching my 10-year-old emergency and survival skills earlier than he should, in all fairness, have to think about and worry about. I was going to ask you about that. You know, your son is put in a position that hopefully not a lot of kids ever have to go through and he acted correctly. And I, mm-hmm. I wanted to bring this back around to your project, mm-hmm. you know, I'll let you reintroduce here, but you're in the business of teaching these kinds of hard thinking. I don't even, it's probably not the right description. These like hard decisions in, in under duress, right? Like you have, you're an educator in this space. Tell us a little bit about that. Oh, wow. Okay. So I've spent most of my adult life teaching martial arts in one way or another. And, you know, at that, and most martial arts as it's taught in North America is a really fun cardio class, right? It's a dance class. And that's, there's nothing wrong with that. There's a lot of people who will say McDojo this, or that's not real martial arts, but I mean, come on, this is North America. It's going to be a cheeseburger gets us, not a mugger. Mm-hmm. Let's be honest, right? We can have all the fantasies we want. We can watch Bruce Lee all day long, but Come on, guys. You know, it's said, if you want real self-defense, take a jog. You know, drink one less Coke. <laughs> right? Because that's what's going to get us. Yeah. But anyway, uh, when I adopted my oldest son, uh, at the time I knew 12 different ways to take a gun away from a guy, 10 of which pointed the gun at a kid if that kid was, like, standing behind me and to the right, <laughs> which is where my kid's going to stand. And so I became very, very interested in martial arts and self-defense as somebody protecting somebody. Hmm. And my early investigation into that really opened up how much safety is important and how many non-self-defense things are out there to pay attention to. Uh, you know, making sure you have a stocked first aid kit, making sure that you've had your brakes checked, you know, man, knowing these signs of depression, anxiety, hmm. and suicide in your child all of these things all of these pieces and then the channel which we ju- i just launched this summer is where i take my experience as a black belt as a journalist and as a father and i interview pretty high level experts on the various topics our first season had the guy in charge of paramedics for san francisco international airport mm-hmm. who came on to talk to us about okay these are the injuries to kids i see too damn often this is what parents can do so i don't see them anymore Wow. Um, and then uh, Canada's foremost expert on suicide prevention. Wow. Uh, recently interviewed the guy who teaches advanced work at one of the most prestigious bodyguard academies in the country, talking about how we can apply uh, location research uh, techniques from bodyguards to planning your next family vacation. Hmm. So some real serious experts on the topics that when I started, I didn't even think of as necessary to child safety. And that's, that's what's happened from it. And my, my youngest has been the beneficiary of some of that. 
I think I just found uh, my, you know, both my because of the pandemic, both my kids, uh, my year old daughter and my fourteen year old son, mm-hmm. doing school from home, and I think I just found our uh, necessary uh, class that we'll be taking together <laughs> by watching a YouTube video together. <laughs> What's the name uh, of your channel? It's the safest family on the block. That's great. That's a great uh, channel name. That's probably that. why you thought well, his you. name was Jason Block. Ooh, oh, yeah, there you right. go. There you go. I should change my name because then I get to have a pun. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's been a yeah. I've, I've learned so much from it, and I've been very very happy with how just really humbled by the level of expertise and skill of my guests, and how willing they are to just come on the show with this random dude from Portland and share without any kind of compensation uh, the stuff that they learned with a career of seeing some pretty awful shit. Yeah. You know, they earned it the hard way. They're just willing to give it away because they think it's important. Yeah, man, that sounds really great. So people, so people can find you yeah. on YouTube, safest family on the block. Any other way to yep. find anything else? Oh, uh, we're over on Facebook mm-hmm. and we have a newsletter and you can find the links to that on Facebook. And we just finished up a product that I'm really happy with that I'm giving away to anybody who wants it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got with some of the experts that I interviewed, uh, you know, that paramedic I talked about, a uh, police officer who served more than 1,000 no-knock warrants in his career. So he knows how you can keep someone out of the house because he's been on the other end of it. Whoa. Uh, yeah. Whoa. Uh, John Riddle, he's an insanely nice guy, very knowledgeable guy. Rory Miller was on there. A number of experts on safety and security. And it's a 24-page workbook where you draw in or glue in a copy of your home's floor plan. And it walks you through how to scan the perimeter for safety and security issues, how to look at the points of entry, and then inside your house, both in terms of home security and then also where are the places where your child might get hurt? Where is your fire alarm? Where are your fire extinguishers? Where's your fire ladder if you have a second floor house? Where's the gas shut off? Things like that. And then it walks you through setting up a bug out plan and a bug in plan. And finally, a communications tree for when there are emergencies. How do you get hold of each other? Where's your primary rally point? Where's your secondary rally point? So you finish this workbook that's done in very, very plain English. No operators speak or anything like that. And you have your plans. You have an assessment of your house. You have a to-do list for making your home safer. And I'm giving that PDF to anybody who wants it. I'm getting it. Done. Excellent. I'm getting it. I've done all this stuff verbally. I think that'd be a fun project as a family to do. That's super cool. Man, Jason, dude, yeah. this has um, been a, a real gift. Thank you for sharing this. And I, I just hope it's helpful. Yeah. It is. I mean, if it's helpful to anybody, it's helpful to me. And, and yeah. I, I know, I, I just, look, man, half of all people, all married, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, are going to end in divorce. Mm-hmm. It's a terrible t- statistic. Well, you got your dad going there, fucking up the fucking up the numbers, though. <laughs> yeah, bell curve. He's right? real fucking that up. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly right. But I, but the other thing is, yeah. I, I don't know the number of people who build mental illness. It's got to be very high. Yeah. I have no, no. any number I'd say I'd be making up. But the mm-hmm. but the truth of the matter is, and I think you were talking about this at the beginning, is it's a it's a high number, and it's mm-hmm. a it's a number that if you aren't dealing with it, you know someone who is dealing with it. Yeah. And that conversation needs to be more vocal, more open. Our understanding of how deliberating it actually is needs to be higher. The empathy for folks who are dealing with it needs to be higher and all those things you gave us. And, and that is uh, of great value. So I really appreciate that, Jason. Thanks so much for sharing all that with us. Absolutely. 
Yeah. And you know, there's some good news about it too. I think that uh, you know, I'm a I'm a dedicated student of profanity. <laughs> and this is whatever you're about to say. I'm excited. <laughs> <laughs> so our grandparents, right, or, or our great grandparents for uh, younger folks, the big cuss where they would get you slapped by your by your dad was blasphemy. God damn it, Jesus Christ, right? And that was because religion was still very important in our culture then. For the next generation, it was about sex, cocksucker, motherfucker, fuck, right? That would get you slapped. And then we all lightened up about sex, and then it was hate speech, mm. right? You could drop an F-bomb in a crowd, but you could not if you're a white man because we became aware of how damaging and how bad it was to, be, to have that mindset and what a scores racism was on our culture. Kids these days do not want you to say retard, and they do not want you to say crazy. Yeah. And so I think that's a sign that our culture is beginning to be more empathic, more understanding, and more educated about mental illness. Mm. That's great, man. Man, thanks a lot, dude. Really appreciate it. Thank well, you, thank for, you for having me on. I lesson in profanity and uh, <laughs> its its implications. All right, dude. Have a good one. Take care. You too. Take it easy, guys. Bye-bye. Everybody, welcome to Field Dressing, where today we are going to talk about our conversation with Jason, Jason Brick. Brick. I thought it was Brick. I'm glad, glad you reminded me. And his uh, journey and story of being married to somebody who, had bi- who has bipolar disorder and going through a very difficult season of his life. Um, and still, still very much kind of dealing with the the echoes, the repercussions of that in his life. And I was number one, super grateful that he would tell us a, a not fun story. And I was really appreciative of him saying right out, of, you know, right off the box that out of the box that we don't insist on someone with a broken arm to lift a heavy thing, and therefore we shouldn't insist on people with mental health issues to live a normal life. Yeah. And, and that is a, I think a message, if there's a through line through that, that's that. And something you and I have been dancing around, probably didn't know how to articulate it exactly that succinctly, but I'm glad he brought it up. And I'm glad that, that I know that as this goes on, we I want to keep talking about that in its own way. And then, man, you know, but you can't have a story like that without it being messy, without it being painful, because that's what it is. It's all, unfortunately, a bit ugly, but that's what makes us, right? Like our, our journey into being healthy people is fraught with pain while we work out, while we do nutrition and change our old habits. And unfortunately, those things are like pressing the fast forward button on on our journey when you're mm-hmm. having to be in the heat of those moments, you're like, I got to deal with this and you're dealing with it. It's interesting to me how, um, he, like a lot of people I think can like kind of shut off and deal with whatever has got to go on. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the fire's going, the, the, the fire on the submarine is happening, like the worst case scenario. And you just turn off and you turn on a part of your brain that needs to do the simple things like feed people, make sure people are safe, make sure these like, you know, items are taken care of. 
And, and then for a while, like your body will do okay, but then you begin to neglect that part of him, part of yourself. And I liked how he was describing his journey into that and how he was recognizing his own neglect within himself during that time. Yeah. And then, uh, it was really interesting how he talked about it. He had a good network around him, people who cared about him enough that they recognized that in him. They're like, man, you need to take some time off. And they arranged some childcare and some other things, sent him out of town to do some life giving things. And that was his moment where he realized like, Oh, I need to take care of myself more. You know, it's interesting too. I, something that just struck me, uh, he was talking about, well, he, he even mentioned like we were kind of just talking about, he's, you, you can tell he's kind of in the, he's not in the middle of it, yeah but he's still, when you have a child together who is under 18, you're yeah. still late, right? Yeah, forever. I mean, that's... Yeah, even yeah. after. So, yeah. so he seemed he seemed like... And Jason's a friend of mine. He, I, he seemed like he was still in the thick of it a little bit. Man, I, you know, I can imagine how that would be because I, I have an adopted son. The birth dad still is kind of on the peripheral. Yeah. And it can be weird. Like it can be heated. It can feel like, Jesus, man, this should be, this should have been done a decade ago or a long time ago, but this is actually strangely hard. Well, he even said that he was like venting (laughs) at one point. And I was like, wow. When he said that, I was like, I really appreciate you. So that speaks to two things uh, that come to mind. First of all, um, and Jason's a, a very aware person about like, having men around him, Mm -hmm. you know, a network uh, who can get down to the nitty gritty. I I, I know that's the case. At the same time, it felt like we were kind of there for him to process a little bit, you know, because he said like the day before he was having interactions. So that's the first thing. It's kind of cool to be there for someone, but to do it in a public, on a public thing is, I appreciated that he was willing to go there and it might be a little bit messy, like part of you to show people. And it's like, good, let's normalize a little bit the, the trench warfare that we're all in. Like if you saw the way I've handled, maybe let's pick three conflicts in my life that I've handled in the last two weeks. And you had a five to 10 second sound bit, you know, of those conflicts. And you were going for the worst sound bits you could find. They, they they're there. They're, they you have your choice know, of yeah. many, you know. Yeah. And I just was like, I appreciated that he was open to showing us. Secondly, though, he talked right, like you said, right off the bat. It, you know, mental mental health is is like a physical yeah. injury. But you can tell that is he is he struggling with like, is he expecting his? I even asked him. I think like, yeah. your ex wife you know, has a broken arm mm. or whatever, broken or whatever bipolar, the yeah. physical yeah. parallel to that is it's something significant. Yeah. And it seems hard to still have the compassion when you're intrinsically linked still yeah. and they're affecting your child. And you could just see that whole ball of wax playing out in him. Yeah. It reminds you, you know, I, I run around circles of where people are, are dealing with spouses and, and children and like who are affected yes. intensely by this kind of stuff. And I was listening to a woman the other day talk about her husband who has um, Alzheimer's and dementia and her listening to her describe how he will yell at her, berate her, forget things that they're talking about. And she's like, I can't, take it personally. And yet I'm taking it personally. And I can't imagine 
yeah. the weight of that, of, yeah. of understanding that this person who's doing these things has no idea, nor would they have ever chosen to do this kind of thing. And they're, and it's totally uncontrollable and you're supposed to treat them with dignity and respect and kindness. And yet your feelings are being hurt. It's like saintly levels of compassion and understanding and taking. Yeah. 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 I'm glad he had that conversation with us. I'm grateful for it. And you know, if you're in your own life dealing with yourself or someone, you know, whether it's your significant other, your spouse, parent, sibling, and they're suffering and are dealing with this stuff. You too can, experience secondary trauma you too can experience your own kind of pain from having to be the person who helps them or who is around them or who assists them to be really mindful of what you need to do for yourself and maybe you need to go see a therapist maybe you need to talk to your doctor maybe you need to do what he did which was to invest in his health his own health his eating he talked about his diet uh your exercise regime i mean daniel and i talk about all the time we use all the tools on the tool belt for our mental health, everything, you know, and, and we, we get nitty gritty. We were just finishing a conversation about our like very specialized workout routines that we can do at home. And the the amount of screen time we allow ourselves, the, the amount of time that we invest for things that are carrying us forward because we have happier brains and happier physiologies when we do that stuff. Nice. So be aware of that when you're taking care, because I know my personality type can get lost in taking care of someone else. I can, I can Florence Nightingale myself to death essentially. And it took me a long ass time to realize I'm of no use to anybody if, if I'm not healthy and I'm not, done that for myself she is yeah she's famous a bit she was a british uh, nurse during world war one who would like nurse all these these um young men back to health like people that people gave people thought they were as good as dead and she took care of them and she would encourage them you're gonna live you're gonna get through this and some of them would yeah and some of them would yeah that's pretty amazing yeah totally amazing um okay so Let's talk about the hard thing. <laughs> yeah. Field dressing of the field dressing. Yeah. The gut pile. <laughs> I mean, it's, I think it's important. Uh, well, what are we talking yeah. about? What we're talking about is the bleeped word, the hard N word that uh, he dropped at the end of that. And that was hard because he was trying to make a good example of words around sensitive issues and our attachment to those issues and our attachments to those words and it and for me it just stole the show unfortunately it 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 blinded me to whatever moral he was trying to leave me because i was so stopped by that word and and i will say ron cecil grew up in a community that was by nature by its existence racist my father's culture and his community used that word in raci- racist ways all the time and even as a child, I'm, I'm, I was like, one, I said it in a racist way while I had a best friend down the street who was black. He was my best friend. Really? Yeah. And it took me till I was about 11, 10, or maybe nine or 10 years old before I was like, I can't, this doesn't make sense to me. Wow. How could you talk about this and say that you're a friend? those things can't live together. And I, and I knew then like this cannot exist in my life. 
fast forward to 2020 when we're realizing how big and how expansive systematic racism is in so many ways through the justice system, through educational systems, through uh, the home loan system. I mean, it, it, it's, it's virtually untouched. The American way is virtually untouched by systematic racism. You had a friend who said, I don't feel like I am entitled to use that word. Is that the word? The phrase you said, you said, I don't have a right to it. I don't have a right to it. I couldn't agree more. I have no attachment to it. I don't, I don't care. I don't care the semantics about it. It's a word that if I value my friends of color and I do, out of respect for them, no matter what, it's just not on my, it's not on my palate. It's not on my quiver. I'm not going for it. <laughs> so it was tough. I thought what Jason said was really valuable and I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater in this situation. And, and I get why he was trying to use it to drive a point home. That's not what I would have chosen. With that said, yeah, you know, like, and we spoke to Jason about yeah. this. That was one of the first things that we knew we wanted to do because the important thing around moments like this and, is that the, it sparks it sparks conversation yeah. and room for people to become more aware, to update and become uh, and to become different, yeah. you know. And you know, me, you, Jason, we're all very open to that. And so we had a three a three way conversation on the phone, and it was nice to hear a little bit of what he had to say because it is a conscious conscious decision for him. He has thought about it, and he has arrived to a conclusion that. It's not said with hate. This is the impression I get yeah. is from him. Is it's is that he said I'm not saying it with hate in any way. Um, therefore, it doesn't matter. You know, I'm gonna don't censor me, and mm -hmm. I'm gonna use it to tell a story that um, that has that is promoting awareness of people and and in our environment. So fair enough, man. But with that said, I actually also didn't think his joke made sense. Yeah, all um, right. And this, I didn't talk to Jason about, but I, I still, like I say, he's my friend. This is a conversation I would definitely have with him in yeah. person too. Because um, I'm curious what he'd say about it. Because sometimes we just get caught up in a mind frame right. and we tell a joke and then yeah. you realize that didn't make any sense. Yeah. I hope I would hope and think that he would like have a conversation on yeah. that. But I thought his point was, that we had curse words around uh, first around religion. So you don't say those and they right. kind of gets regulated, yeah. normalized. Yeah. And like, we've got some awareness we can say. Right. And there was one other thing I forgot the second sexuality. Thing. There was sexuality. Yeah. And then there was then race. race. Yeah. And then there was mental health, mental health. Yeah. So, but to, to say that we've like worked out the language around racism right now is like, I don't think that's we're just scratching the surface. Yeah. True. I mean, it's yeah. as hot a topic, if not more, yeah. than mental health. I think so. So I would like to propose that to him, and I'm curious. And, and the other way it doesn't work is that we don't we don't have the same relationships with curse words around religion or around sexuality like we do around race or mental health because we don't see those things as underserved communities. We don't see them as oppressed communities. I mean, I would say sexuality is is like gender, like the c word. It could, oh yeah, but we, but people say motherfucker with no fear. That's a good point. Of of like of <laughs> what you just say about mother, right? Mom? Yeah, right. Exactly. But it's not <laughs> connected with a person or identity or gender. Um, you know, the other sexual curse words, we definitely no one is saying that only a certain few Christians yeah. are offended by that. I personally don't think that God needs to be defended. 
my own personal opinion. I also try to be kind of cognizant of not saying those things. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Out of respect, really to myself, but, um, but I get, so, so it broke down into two different ways. So it was just kind of a bad example on his part, it and, was. but yeah. good Lord, I know that I've been trying to make moral, like, uh, metaphors and say things that I think in my mind, like, yeah. this is going to be so smart. As soon as I say it, and yeah. it comes out, I'm like, I'm an asshole. I'm Sometimes totally stupid. You, whiff, you know, you win. <laughs> yeah. And what you want to hear in that case is like, and we asked Jason, like, do you want to come do the, the field dressing yeah. of that moment with us? And he said, I would be happy to, I don't need to, but if you want me to, I'd be happy to, Yeah. you know, and we just decided, let's just do it. It's, it, you know, and it, and I, I would hope that he would at some point in time say something to the effect of not the best metaphor, not the best joke, kind of whiffed on that yeah, one. Yeah. Um, you know, and that, that'll be room for future discussions. But I'm glad, in a sense, I'm glad that it, that, that happened because it gets me with a good friend of mine who, you know, um, I'm not going to say he needs to like update his thing, yeah. but I'm curious because maybe he does and maybe he thinks he does. I don't know. I just want to have the discussion. I think it's a, a conversation worth having. I think if you have thoughts around, it, especially if you're a person of color and heard that and were triggered by it, and I, I'd love to hear your articulation around it and what yeah. your thoughts are. I know that we're actually recording this part days after we recorded that because yeah. we, we finished the recording and we just thought, geez, <laughs> that's just ruined. It kind of felt that Like way. the whole thing's gone because of that one little... I don't even want to say little, that one insane misuse. Well, time-wise, it was a very little moment. It was, but yeah. it was a heck of a lot more I than know. that. I it, it, like, it was one of those moments where I'm like sitting there and like everything just got erased as I was listening to him talk. And I just thought, Jesus, I got I to gotta sit here for a while and not forget the value that he just brought and the, and the good things he just taught yeah. us. Because I don't, I, don't, I don't believe everyone is all bad if they say one shitty thing. Well, it's like, what's, what's the, what's the you on the inside? What's your intention? Are you kind yeah. to people, yeah. you know? Yeah. And then if the core is yes, you know, yeah. I care deeply, but then some of the ways that we can act can end up not being kind, even though there's a kind core. And that's when things get a little weird, you know? Totally. And yeah. I know Jason is kind and cares deeply about people, all people, you mm-hmm. know? Um, he's lived in different countries. Like he, trust me, that guy, yeah. he cares. Yeah. Um, and yet we can still, as, as our, our experiences get further and further away from, well, I don't really know what I'm saying there, but we can definitely do things that are not. I like how you abandon not- ship. Like when you're trying to figure something out, <laughs> well, like, oh, never mind. <laughs> I love that. Rather than trying to like, fix it <laughs> forget that <laughs> you know it's you know how it is though we I can do end up doing is, yeah. things because there's so many people in this world and so many moments that end up coming off to this person is unkind and yeah. legitimately so yeah that are detached from who you are and you gotta you have to you have to be a ninja you know you have dude to be i mean i wrote aware. i wrote something the other day that was about a midlife crisis i used a real world example of a business owner who from the outside is having a midlife crisis, but was actually having a bipolar event that caused the police to get informed. I knew all that as I was writing it because I also knew part two of what I was writing was going to be about mental health issues and how you needed to go get checked out. And and the, one of the comments was you're ignorant and uneducated and this person is suffering from blah, 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 blah. And, and I'm like, you're totally right. Like. 
I am ignorant about this stuff. I'm not educated this stuff, but I also know that he was doing that. I didn't want to like come out and say it because I was trying mm-hmm. to serve the part two of what I was writing. Oh, huh. And but it really pissed this person off. And and she was very angry with me. And and I'm like, I'm not mad at you for being angry. Like you feel like I was yeah. trying to misspeak about this person. And I wasn't. I actually have a ton of respect for the person that experienced And that. that was the tone of Jason when we brought this up to him, because yeah. I think his side of the story, which should be spoken to, is you can go too far with sensitivity. Yeah. And that turns into censorship. Yeah. You know, so like we're just do, And I think one of the reasons we needed to take a few days before we was because I don't want I, I don't want to go too far the other way where yeah. I'm oversensitive. I don't. Uh, yeah, I I I don't either. And, but I, but I do care for people. If you're a person, if you're alive or dead, like I care for you. And I also don't want to self-censor. Um, but my, I will hope that my default language is of care and kindness yeah. uh, and not judgment. Although of course there are people in this world that I'm like, this is going to be harder for me to be kind and <laughs> caring towards you. <laughs> But I will try to be as respectful as I can. Yeah. <laughs> yeah well, th- this was a difficult conversation we've been having for days. And we had a lot of trepidation about what we were going to say and how we were going to say it. We've talked to people we've trusted about this. And we may not get it right. And that's okay. If you're, if you're feeling whatever feeling, you're more entitled. You know, you're completely entitled to that feeling. And, and whatever you feel like you need to share with us, I'm a big boy. I can handle well, it. Plus, taking a few yeah. days, I feel like we discussed... This discussion we just had, in my opinion, two thumbs up, yeah, you know? I think so, too. We, we, I, I've changed. I went back and forth and up and down, yeah. you know, all over, and I looked at it from all angles, and I really feel like a little bit more of aware and a better person. Honestly, I really yeah. do, yeah. from the heart. Yeah. And that's nice. I th- you said something about it um, at the beginning, which is what a great problem to have because it creates, uh, I mean, because it creates conversation. I don't think I said what a great problem. <laughs> just, uh, well, that's what I heard. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough, man. But I mean, you know I mean? It's, it's, it's a, it's an unfortunate problem. It is. It's definitely problem. an opportunity to gain yeah. awareness. Yeah. Yeah. I'll take that. I'll take that. And you said something similarly, mm. you, you know, you, you said you were glad it happened. Mm. You know? I'm not though. <laughs> I know that's the thing, right? <laughs> I, I've actually changed. My I, mind no, don't now. forget that. <laughs> All right. See you later, everybody.